listening to the Miracle Word Podcast. We believe that the Word of God gives you the power to experience never-ending increase in every area. If you're ready for revelation that will take you to the next level, you're in the right place. Here's your host, evangelist, author, and founder of Miracle Word University, Ted Shuttlesworth, Jr. I'm continuing in this thought that we started yesterday in this new week on our um, position in Christ, authority in Christ, our identity in Christ, which I told you is without question, um, the, my opinion, the most important thing for somebody to learn after they get saved. I mean, that's why I told you yesterday, we're making sure that we teach this in this digital discipleship course that we're putting together for those that are getting, be, getting ready to be saved all over the world as they watch our brand new television broadcast. By the way, if you didn't know, we're going to be airing the television broadcast now in over 100 nations of the world. And uh, it's amazing how quickly God opened that door. And uh, so I think uh, what this Thursday night is going to be our fourth week on television. Uh, so uh, literally a month already. And so I'm continuing on today. We're going to be talking about it um, in this context, as you saw in the title, the Antichrist versus you, the Antichrist versus you. We're dealing with that today. So take a minute to share it. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a few scriptures and I want to kind of talk to you about, I know this is not something people talk about often. Churches don't usually talk about it very often. End times Bible prophecy. Usually they'll do a special event or bring in a special speaker or, you know, go through a course from a book or something like that. I know it's not something that's often talked about, but I want to talk about it with you today because how you believe about um, end times Bible prophecy will be shaped by how you see yourself in the word and whether or not you understand who you are in Christ. And if you don't understand that, it will shape your view of end times Bible prophecy. And so understand that it, this is not mainly, uh, it's, it's a weird thing. It's not mainly a Bible prophecy episode today, although we will be talking about end times Bible prophecy. It's about who you are in Christ. I do want to make that distinction. This is about who you are in Christ, but it will affect how you see or view end times Bible prophecy. We'll get into that in a minute. Uh, so I'm telling you, it is important to take a second to share it because once you see this, you can never unsee it. That's basically how I say, once you see this, you can never unsee it because it makes so much sense when you see this, uh, way of thinking that's taught in scripture. It's like, it unlocks your mind. Like, Oh man, you know, you ever seen that where you're like, oh, how did I not, how would I never think of that before? How did I never see that before? How is it that I, I've read that a hundred times and I've never, never seen that? It will do that to you. It will literally make you think, oh, I, I, I should have known that. Hey, Mary Sue, Natifa, we love you. Kelly and Bill, Desiree, Janine, good morning. I love you guys. And so, um. We're going we're gonna to dive into that, but you saw I put it in the title as the Antichrist versus you. And, um, you know, what's blown my mind is I've, I've even seen in the, in the last few weeks, people on social media, of course, everybody's a theologian on social media, 
but I've been seeing these people and I've even had people try to jump on my, uh, my YouTube channel and, and, you know, correct me or whatever. And, uh, people have been saying, well, there is no actual antichrist as an individual person that the antichrist is an idea. It's an agenda. And of course they use the verse in the Bible that there will be many antichrists. And so they talk about the fact that it's, it's an ideology, it's an agenda, it's a group of people, um, it's rebellion against God, all those things, which I'm not saying that there's not an antichrist agenda. Obviously there is. I'm not saying that there aren't, as the Bible says, many antichrists, little a. Um, I'm not saying that there's not a plan to tear down the church or all those things are true. However, on top of that, there is also a man who will be the antichrist. He's mentioned in Bible prophecy, as you know. And so you, you can't do away with him just, just because you have this other thought process that, well, you know, antichrist is really, you know, it's a thought process. It's an agenda. It's the, no, it's more than that. It's more than that. There is a man in scripture, as I'll show you in a minute, and he will be raised up in power, according to Bible prophecy, according to Second um, Thessalonians, according to the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel. He will be uh, raised up in power. He will become a world leader. There's no question about it. The Bible teaches it. He'll become a world leader. And so you can't deny that there will be a man called the Antichrist or the beast, or as Thessalonians, the man of lawlessness. And we're going to deal with that because how you view end times Bible prophecy is very much based upon how you understand your identity in Christ. I'm going to give you a few things from the Old Testament, New Testament, show you types and shadows that will help you to understand. And then I want to encourage you because I think more than ever before, it's time for the church to grasp who she is in Christ. See, there is a power to understanding who you are in Christ and you will not step up to take what's yours until you understand your identity. You know, that's really an amazing thing if you think about it, uh, even if you know, your promises in life, the thing, your inheritance, um, your identity, it's based upon your name, obviously. And if somebody in your family were to pass away and leave you an inheritance, you can't just run into their house or into their estate and start taking anything you want to take until you've sat down with everybody else in the family and the attorney or the, the attorney who's the arbiter of this, of the estate and listen to the will and the will is read. What does that do? It doesn't just, first of all, remember this, the identity defines who can be in the room. That's the first thing. The identity defines who can be in that room. Not everybody. Remember this, not everybody's welcome to come just sit in that room and act like they're a part of the family with something in the inheritance. No, not everybody has an inheritance. I'm talking about, that would be uh, an analogy that where everybody that's in the room 
is part of the family of God. So Christians have an inheritance, but people that are outside the body of Christ don't have an inheritance from Jesus. That's for the children of God. And so not everybody can be in the room, only those in the family. But then again, you hear the will read and you know what's yours to take. Hallelujah. Maybe that extremely wealthy person in your family had, you know, um, a summer home, you know, in the Outer Banks, let's say, for example. And that specifically was left to you. It's not for anybody else. The person who passed away left that property to you. Well, your identity allowed you in the room and then the word of that person transferred to you an inheritance that was specific. You see that? And so even though you're in the family, your inheritance, what you were able to do was different and unique and that's how you knew it. The word was read by the arbiter and now you know the outer bank's house is yours. And so that's the key. That's how you understand it. When your identity, when you know your identity, then you can also know your inheritance. And the Bible says that we have an inheritance that is priceless. We have an inheritance that is priceless. There's, there's so many, thank you, Roger. There's so many Christians who don't participate or even receive their inheritance on the earth because they don't know it's theirs. It's a very sad thing. I hate to see that. I hate to see a Christian that's living far below where God has called them to live because they don't understand their identity and they don't understand their inheritance. And it's not God's plan. I want you to put it in the comments today to start the day. I have an identity and an inheritance. I have an identity and an inheritance. So very important. I have an identity and an inheritance. And so that's the exciting thing is if you're in the family of God, don't ever let the devil try to talk you out of the fact that you are somebody, that you are a a part of the family of God, a child of God. Don't let the devil try to talk you out of that. He has no ability to manipulate the new identity that you've been given through Christ. No no ability whatsoever. So as you're writing it, I see it. I have an identity and an inheritance. Powerful thought. An identity and an inheritance. And today, as you saw in the title, the Antichrist versus you. And we're going to see that. You know, let me just say it plainly. Obviously, and we've done, uh, we've done, and we're, we're actually working behind the scenes right now to make all of the things we've done in the past extremely easily accessible to all of you. We're, I mean, if you follow our ministry, you know, we have so much content that we release, so much content. I mean, not only being live five days a week and sometimes more than that, you know, twice a day, like we do sometimes, plus you know, all of the different messages we have and all of the different things I've written and all of that podcast. We've got so much content. And so we're working right now on a, basically a content hub where as I'm talking about something on the broadcast, we could quickly drop a link to you uh, or several links and, and you could go and 
consume that content after it's done. We want to make it super easy. And that's coming very, very soon. So we're working on that. But um, I've done plenty of broadcasts on the rapture. Uh, end times prophecy, where uh, we di- we talk about the different positions on the rapture of the church. Some people deny there even will be a rapture, uh, and then obviously um, there's there's three main and popular positions on the rapture, but there are more than that. There's like five to seven different positions that people take on the rapture of the church. The three main, as you know, are the pre-tribulation rapture, the mid-tribulation rapture. And the post-tribulation rapture. Just to quickly break that down for you, uh, the pre-tribulation rapture, people believe that the church will be taken from the earth before any of the judgment of God begins in the seven years of the tribulation that the Bible teaches. We believe that we will be taken from the earth into heaven before the seven years of tribulation or God's wrath begin on the earth. On the other hand, you have people that believe in a mid-tribulation rapture. They believe that the church will get three and a half years into the tribulation, and then at the midpoint, probably somewhere around uh, where the Antichrist is assassinated, uh, struck down, and then resurrected from the dead, uh, they believe that somewhere around that point, the church will be raptured uh, from the earth halfway through the tribulation. And then, of course... Um, the, the, the post-tribulation rapture people, they believe we'll go through the whole seven years with everybody else. And at the end, at the second coming of Christ, somehow we'll go meet him in the air, turn around and come right back down to the earth. Kind of a pointless rapture. Um, and so, although there are multiple viewpoints, I want to show you something today that as we understand who we are in Christ, it will help us to see where we stand on things like the Antichrist, the rapture. And so I hope you got your Bible out. I'm going to start with you in uh, the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to start in 1 Thessalonians um, chapter 4. Go there with me. 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4. And I want to show you something quickly. And then we'll go to the fifth chapter and then into second Thessalonians. I want to show you this. You are somebody in Christ. You carry a powerful identity in Christ. It's not a small thing, by the way. That's why the devil doesn't want you to understand it. It's why he doesn't want you to step up into it. It's why he doesn't want you to activate it. It's powerful. And he knows the kind of power you carry. He knows who Christ has made you to be. He doesn't want you to see it. He wants to, he wants your vision to be uh, shrouded, if you will, or he wants you to be walking in deception, not understanding, believing a lie about yourself. And so in first Thessalonians chapter uh, four, listen to what Paul wrote, starting in verse 13, verse 13, listen, but we don't want you to be uninformed brothers about those who are asleep or dead, that you may not grieve as others who don't have any hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage, encourage one another with these words. Now, if you don't know, this passage I just read to you is not a passage about the second coming of Christ. This is a passage about the rapture of the church. Love you, Christian. This is a rap. This is a rapture passage, not a second coming passage. And so understand that the dead in Christ, those who died that were Christians, their bodies will be resurrected from the ground at the rapture of the church and reunited with their spirits. Those of us that are alive and remain will be caught up. Our actual physical bodies will be taken up into the air and glorified instantly by the power of God. And so I wanted you to see the last phrase in this chapter because it, it really gives you a clue, doesn't it? Look what he said. He, he describes the whole rapture. He describes the fact the Lord's coming to take us away. And then he says this, very interesting. Verse 18, encourage one another with these words. Now listen to me. If Paul knew and the Holy Spirit inspired everything that's in the Bible, So Paul's writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If Paul knew that we had to go through seven years of God's wrath, and I mean, I'm talking the worst days on earth in the history of the earth. It makes the Holocaust look like nothing. It makes the Nazi camps look like nothing, look like a vacation. And they were terrible. They were horrible. But the tribulation will make it look like easy street. It will be horrific. It will be horrific. And it's not the devil doing it. It's the God that is holy, who sits in heaven, pouring out his wrath on an earth that rejected Jesus Christ. And do you honestly think that if we had to be here through all seven years of that, do you think Paul would have really written about the rapture of the church as a thing to be hopeful for and a thing to be encouraged by. Hey, I know, encourage one another with these words. Listen, when Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians, there was already persecution for being a Christian. Go back and study the early church. For 300 years, we had extreme persecution of the church until the peace of the church under Constantine. So I want you to understand something. They were already suffering back then. Paul was suffering, going through persecution after persecution. The church was being killed, but it was flourishing. And so he then reminds them, guess what? There's a future day coming where Jesus will come, encourage one another. Listen, if we had to sit through the wrath of God, he said, well, that's not what he was talking about. He was actually talking about that in in the context of the fact that there is persecution on the earth. Yeah, but if you keep going, because remember, there were no chapters when Paul wrote his letter. That was added in the 1500s. Chapters and verses were added over a thousand years later. This is one letter. And as Paul continues to write, I want you to see something that he writes. Huh. 
I'll go in now. I'm in, I'm in chapter five. Like I told you, I would be talking about the day of the Lord. Cause that's what he's been talking about. He said, you don't have any, you don't have need about concerning times and seasons. You don't have any need that anything be written to you for years. You yourselves are aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, like a thief in the night. While people are saying there's peace and security, sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in the darkness, brothers. Catch this. Verse five, for your children of the light, children of the day, we are not of the night of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since you belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope, uh, uh, for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now look at verse nine. This should open your eyes because of who we are. Notice who he, what he's, notice what Paul's saying. We're not like those other people. We're not like the people of the night. We're not like the people of the dark. We're not them. So take courage. That's not who we are. He's talking about the day of the Lord. When everybody's saying peace and security, it'll come like a thief in the night. The second coming doesn't come like a thief in the night. We know with the things that have to be fulfilled. There's so much described about what will happen before the second coming of Christ. We know exactly what will happen. We know what takes place. Uh, a majority of it through those, um, through those uh, seven years. We know. Bible tells us. Tells us what will start the tribulation. Tells us what goes on during the tribulation. Gives us prophecy. So when he comes then, it won't be like a thief in the, the night. We'll know. We'll know. Why? Because you can track the things that are happening through the tribulation. You can track them. But when he comes like a thief in the night, nobody knows when he's coming. As Jesus said, no, no man knows the day or the hour. Nobody knows. But catch this. Verse 9. So after he tells them, we're not like the people of the dark. We're people of the light, people of the day. Notice this. He says, so verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. He's talking about the day of the Lord. And then he says, be encouraged. How could you be encouraged if you know you got to go through the wrath just like everybody else that rejected Jesus? In fact, what's the point? of being saved and Jesus. Now here's an interesting thought. What's the point of being saved and Jesus taking your wrath on his own body on the cross if then later you have to still go through it anyway? That's not the justice of God. That's not what the scripture teaches either. It's not, that's not even doctrinally accurate. God does not see because there would have been no point to put Jesus through God's wrath and have that come upon him where he crucified it on the cross. And Colossians tells us he put an end to that bondage on the cross, on the cross, paid the penalty for your sins on the cross. I did a whole broadcast on that. He didn't have to go to hell to suffer either. Jesus did not go suffer in hell in your place. Didn't do it. He said where he was going told the thief next to him. He said, today you'll be with me in paradise. That's where he went. He went to paradise. He didn't go suffer in hell. He didn't have to. He put an end 
to the penalty of your sin on the cross. Took the wrath of God on the cross, the sin of the world placed upon his body and he was beaten. He was nailed. He was beaten so hard in the face that he just got so disfigured that nobody could recognize who he was. His own, he was unrecognizable to his family and friends. That's how hard they beat his face. Striped his back, nailed his hands, nailed his feet, pierced his side, crown of thorns on his head. Hallelujah. Took that wrath for you. And then Paul, the apostle writes, for God has not destined us for wrath. That doesn't just mean hell, eternal punishment. Now there's people even trying to say there's no hell. It's not a real place, please. If I hear one more dummy say, well, you know, hell is a state of being. It's a state of mind. You know, hell is what we go through every day here. This ain't hell, man. This is not hell. Yes, Christine, I believe we are taken up before. That's what I'm teaching. We're taken up before the tribulation begins. It doesn't make sense that, and by the way, all seven years of it are the wrath of God. It's not the devil. It's, and I'm going to show you that in a moment. It's not the devil. It's God pouring out wrath. Look at the three things that are in the book of Revelation that come onto the earth. What are they? They're judgments. What, what type of judgments? There's bowl judgments. Those are poured out on the earth. The bowl judgments. There's the scrolls. And then there's the trumpets. All three of those groupings, notice where they begin. Notice where the bowls are poured out from. Notice where the scrolls come from. Notice where the trumpets come from. Not hell. Heaven. Heaven. From the presence of God. So anybody who would try to say, that the tribulation period or what the Bible describes as the tribulation period is what the devil's doing to the earth doesn't understand the Bible because they all are all of the judgments, all of the judgments originate in heaven. You see that God's pouring them out. It's his wrath hitting the earth. You know, that is an important point, by the way. It's a very important point. Why? Because when Paul tells us we're not destined for his wrath, it includes that. It's not just hell. It includes that wrath. I'm not called to go through that wrath. Why would I go through it if I've already had my sins paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ? Why would I? It's not justice. It's, it, and I'll tell you another thing it does. It makes Jesus' death arbitrary and nonsensical. Well, you know, I am going to save my children from wrath. However, I am going to still scorch them quite a bit before they come to heaven. No, God doesn't have a plan to scorch you. Doesn't have a plan to hurt you or harm you. And I could go through all this why we're not here. I'd give you seven reasons why we're not here, but I've already done that. I'm talking about your position in Christ. Now we go over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want to read you this. Because see, this is the title of this broadcast, The Antichrist versus You. The Antichrist versus You. By the way, whether you know it or not, the Antichrist can't just take power 
whenever he wants to take power. Bible teaches that. The Antichrist cannot just take power whenever he wants to take power. Second Thessalonians two. That's exactly right, Mike. He said, it's like paying your mortgage off and then getting rewarded with another 30 year mortgage. It's not how it works. After the debt is paid, the debt is paid. Look at this. I'll start with verse one. Second Thessalonians chapter two. I'll start with verse one. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you brothers not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has already come. Let no one deceive you in any way for the day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Some call him the son of perdition, man of lawlessness, the son of destruction. Hmm. Some call him, instead of the man of lawlessness, some call it, some manuscripts call him the man of sin. It's the Antichrist, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now look at verse six, very powerful verse. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. We know that. Only he who now restrains it will do so until the day he's out of the way. Oh, hallelujah. Hallelujah. Look at that. Verse seven. He who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Woo! So you know what that means? That although there is lawlessness going on in the earth, I don't think anybody watching this broadcast or listening on the podcast would disagree that there's already an antichrist spirit at work in the earth and has been since the time of Christ. And even in the Old Testament, there was an anti-God sentiment and spirit in operation. As long as there's wickedness, there's an anti-God, anti-Christ spirit at work in the earth. We know that. Lawlessness is already trying its best. That anti-Christ agenda, without question, is in the earth. We know that. But I'm talk- we're talking about the man who will fulfill Bible prophecies, who will become the world leader, who will try to make himself God. That's an individual. That's not, uh, that's an actual person who will have to rise up. But notice the Bible says he can't just rise up. He can't just take power. Bible says that there is one who is restraining him, who will be moved out of the way. And then he's allowed to rise up and take that power, but not until the one 
who is restraining him, thank you, Lord, is moved out of the way. Who is the one? Now, see, that's been a debate over the years. Who is this one who is restraining him or what many call the restrainer? Who's the restrainer? Well, some have argued that the restrainer is the Holy Spirit, but I disagree. First of all, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. It's omnipre- He's omnipresent. The Holy Spirit, you can't remove the Holy Spirit from any location. Do you realize? So what about hell? Even hell. Did you know what David said? David said, if I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Talking to God. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He is everywhere. You can't remove him. Even if you wanted to remove him, you can't remove him. Plus, not only that, during the tribulation period, there will be some people who become saved or saints during the tribulation period. Well, none of that is possible without the work of the Holy Spirit. You cannot be saved without the work of the Holy Spirit. So he would have to be on the earth in some form, even if it was in more of an Old Testament form where he doesn't indwell people, but comes upon them. But the Holy Spirit has to be on the earth for some of the work that will be done during the tribulation. So I disagree. It's not the Holy Spirit who's being moved out of the way. Rather, it is the body of Christ filled with the power of the Spirit that are moved out of the way. And I think that's the only logical explanation for who or what the identity of this individual could be, the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Well, as I read to you yesterday in our teaching on who you are in Christ, what did I take you to? Luke 10, 19, where Jesus said, I give unto you all authority. We looked into the Greek, didn't we, yesterday and found out that those two words are not the same. It should not be read, I give unto you power over, the, over all of the power of the devil. No, the Greek manuscript actually says, I give unto you authority. It's the word exousia. I give unto you authority over all of the dunamis of the devil, the power. So you've got authority over the devil's power. Oh, hallelujah. I want you to write that in the comments right now. I've got authority over the devil's power. Thank you, Jesus. I've got authority over the devil's power. No question about that. I've got authority over the devil's power. And so that's what's what's going on in this letter. He's reminding them that there is a man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, But he cannot be revealed until the one who is restraining him is moved out of the way. And if you think about this logically, and I'm sure you're doing that even now, think about the fact that if Jesus said no man 
knows the day or the hour of Christ's return. Nobody does. Jesus was saying there, even I don't know. Only my father knows these things. That's what he told his disciples. So if that's really true, and it is, then that means that not only does Jesus not know, angels don't know. And if angels don't know, you better believe fallen angels don't know. Which means the devil does not know when Christ will return and remove the restrainer from the earth. So if you think about it that way, it only makes sense that the devil has had to prepare an antichrist individual in every generation since Christ. Think about that for a minute. Because the devil does not know when Christ is coming. And he has to be ready to fulfill Bible prophecy. And if that's true, he's had to have an antichrist individual, a man that could take over at every period throughout history since Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That, that'll blow your mind. That the devil's so in the dark about the plans of God <laughs> that he just has to be ready at all times. Because none of us know. Christ said it's not for him to know. Only the Father knows. And so there's always been people who were ready to go at any given moment. You see that. But notice this. We are the restrainer. That's why the devil can't just do whatever he wants to do in the earth while the church is here. And you know what's interesting? Is that this is why the church has to know who she is in Christ. Believers have to know who they are in Christ. Because without that revelation, without that knowledge, see, the devil would love to fight against a powerless church. He would love to do that. One who doesn't understand their rights, doesn't understand their authority, doesn't understand their power. Amen. Doesn't understand. You know, it's interesting to me that if you read this and think, well, you know, really Jesus was just talking to the apostles. Because there are people that think this way. You know, these, there are cessationists who believe that what Jesus was saying there was really only to the 12 apostles. Well, if that's the case, why is it that these same, uh, this same authority and power continued to manifest beyond the lives of the apostles? How is that possible? Because it's not just, listen to me, this is an important point. It's not just the 12 apostles of the Lamb who pr produced these same works that Jesus produced. It's not. Notice, later, 70 returned to Christ. 70, not 12, 70. And what did they say? Even the devils are subject unto us. And he said, don't rejoice that the devils are subject unto you, but rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So notice, it wasn't just for the 12 apostles of the Lamb. It, the 70 operated in that power, which means it was spreading. It was expanding. Notice, 120 in the upper room. That's not the 12 apostles of the Lamb. 120. Filled with the Holy Ghost. The church exploded with signs and wonders and miracles. If you haven't noticed, 
Very interesting that Paul writes to the Corinthian church, his first letter to the Corinthians in the first chapter, he says uh, that you abound, you have all gifts. You, you, he said it this way, you don't come behind or lack in any gift as you wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's referring there to the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Paul defined later in the 12th chapter of 1 Corinthians. He said, I, I've heard you don't come behind in any gift. You have an abundance of uh, utterance and speech, knowledge. He was talking to them and you know that it's true because later he has to tell them about bringing those things into control in a church service. You guys got so much of the gifts of the spirit uh, pouring out in your lives of the everyday believer that we got to bring order because your church services are crazy. You got people jumping up all over the place, giving words in tongues. Nobody's interpreting. And so what does he do? He bring, he reigns it in and brings order back into the church. But the reason they had that going on is because they had an abundance of the power of God moving in their church. It wasn't the 12 apostles of the lamb. It was a very immature church in Greece where people were bragging about having sex with their stepmother. And Paul had to say, remove them from the church, shame them, turn them over to the devil for the destruction of their soul. <laughs> immature, baby Christians. These were baby Christians. But what did they have? Power, the gifts of the spirit in operation. These things aren't, uh, as some would teach, restricted to the 12 apostles of the lamb? No, absolutely not. In fact, and I know we don't use anything outside the Bible or extra biblical sources to prove the Bible. The Bible proves itself. It doesn't need anything else. It stands on its own two legs. It's the word of God inspired and inerrant. However, if we read church history and we read the early church fathers, you know what we find? Go back and read these guys. Go back and read um, Irenaeus, Polycarp. Go back and read all their accounts. You know what you're going to find? They were having miracles happen in the early church after the death of the last apostle, John the Revelator. They were seeing it. Dead people. They were seeing demons cast out. They were seeing miraculous healings. They were seeing all these things take place. They wrote about it. They wrote about it. They were seeing it. That means it didn't stop when John the Revelator died on the Isle of Patmos as the last apostle to die because he was the youngest and lived the longest. No, they were still seeing it, which means the church has an identity that you can't strip away from us. Jesus didn't say those things about having authority over all the power of the devil only to the 12 apostles. Because the 70 were proclaiming, we've got that same authority over the devil's power and devils have to come out when we command them. Well, yeah, because that's how the power of God works. You can receive the power of God and operate in the power of God. You see that. And so understand that it's still available today. The Holy Spirit didn't change. God didn't change. Jesus doesn't change. He equipped his body. He equipped believers with his power to not only to receive the power, to use the power. To do what? To become his witnesses. Acts chapter one and verse eight. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and then you should be my witnesses. It's the whole reason we receive power. To be witnesses for God and Christ. It's who we are to proclaim the gospel message, to see souls saved, and to enforce the kingdom. 
That's why he told his disciples to pray, Lord, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to see God's agenda carried out upon the earth until Jesus comes. We're occupying until he comes. And that's the key. And see, our identity is directly tied to this. The Antichrist versus you, he he doesn't hold a candle because he can't even be revealed until you're gone. I mean, that's straight out of scripture until the one restraining him. The only logical identity there is the church. That's it. That's it. That's the only individual that can be moved out of the way. There's not a person from history that died because it wasn't Jesus. Paul's writing this after Jesus. So it had nothing to do with Jesus dying and leaving and that was the restrainer. No, because he was still being held back. So, it's us. It's you. Somebody write in all caps in the comments, it's me. It's me. I am the restrainer. You are the restrainer. See? And just so that we would know, just so we would see it, I love how God gave us pictures in the Old Testament, even before the coming of Christ, gave us pictures of people who were in covenant with him escaping his wrath. Hallelujah. Escaping wrath. And so, let's go over a couple of those quickly. Noah and his family. The Bible says Noah and his family were blameless. They were righteous pure in the eyes of God. He said, I'm going to destroy this whole wicked earth. However, I'm going to spare Noah and his family. This is a first picture of the rapture. First picture of the rapture. Because Noah is instructed to build the ark, which is a representative of Jesus Christ. It represents Jesus Christ. The ark. If you've never heard this, the ark represents Christ. And notice what happened when Noah and his family came into the ark, them coming into the ark, saved them, spared them from all destruction. Just as you come into Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The ark was a symbol that represented the coming Christ. The judgment of God was poured out upon the whole earth, but not one drop of it touched Noah or his family. I want you to think about this. It had never rained before in history. Never rained. So the rain, the first rain was the judgment of God coming. And notice what happened. None of the rain fell. None of the waters gushed up out of the earth until Noah and his family were safely on the ark. Notice they didn't have to trudge with the animals through three feet of water as the flood was starting. Like some picture of a mid-tribulation rapture. Or notice that they weren't in the middle of a flooded earth floating on their backs in the flood waters and then an ark miraculously appeared and picked them up. No, you don't see a post-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture type and shadow in the Old Testament. You just don't see it. You see a pre-tribulation type and shadow of the rapture. Noah was safely on the ark with his family and all provision before 
one drop of judgment fell and God closed the door. Let's go further than that. What about Lot and his family? Lot and his family were in a wicked situation in those twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God was ready to destroy it. Fire was coming from heaven. Abraham did his best to barter with God. Hey, what if we can find 50 righteous? What about 30? What about 10? Couldn't find them. Lot and his family were it. Lot and his family were it. And what happened? We see a, we see a rapturing happen here. While they delayed, the Bible says, because they'd already had instruction from the angels, two angels, to um, get out of the city before wrath comes. And the Bible says, and when they delayed, hallelujah, when they delayed, look what happened. The angels grabbed hold of them and swept them out of the city before the judgment came. They were actually raptured. The angels grabbed hold of them and swept them out of the city before the judgment could come. Not any judgment fell, not any fire fell, not any brimstone until God's covenant people were swept out of the city. Do you see the picture? Notice that they weren't in the midst of fire falling and they're trying to find their way out of a burning city mid-tribulation rapture. Notice how the city had not been fully destroyed by fire and brimstone. All the dead bodies on the ground laying around and Lot and his family are wading through the dead bodies after the fire has fallen. And then the angels come and whisk them out. That would be a post-tribulation rapture type in shadow. Or while the fire's falling, the angels take them out of the city. That would be a mid-tribulation rapture type in shadow. That's not what the Bible teaches. Notice it. The Bible says that before it fell, while they were delaying, angels grabbed them and rushed them out of the city. It's a rapture. Took them out before the fire fell. Hallelujah. I'll give you another one that's really interesting that I saw recently. So we've been reading through the Bible. <clears throat> um, when, the, when Joshua and, and the Israelites came to Jericho, you know the story that the two spies went into the city of Jericho and um, they met Rahab the prostitute. And Rahab, the prostitute, hid them up on top of the wall and helped them escape, dropped, the, dropped them from a basket in the wall, down the wall of Jericho, and asked them to promise. Came into a covenant with them. I know God's going to give this city into your hand, but please spare me and my household. Please spare me and my household. They just came into covenant together and they agreed to the covenant. Notice this. They were going to destroy Jericho, as you know. But notice what those two spies said to her. They said, when we come back, when we come back, I want you to get everybody that's in your family, that's in covenant with you, get them into this room, get them into your house. And I'll tell our armies and our men that anybody in this house, and how will we know which house is yours? Hang a scarlet cord out of your window. That represents the blood of Jesus. Hang a scarlet cord out of your window so we can mark and identify the protected house. Oh, come on, man. 
The protected house. Somebody write in the comments, my house is protected. My house is protected. And so when they came back and they were going in to kill everybody, notice that they did not touch anybody in Rahab's house. Not anybody. And you know what else that really struck me? Let me show you something cool. This struck me. In Joshua 6, that's the fall of Jericho. uh, The Bible says that, let me start reading in Joshua 6, 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. Another rapture is taking place right here. Another rapture. Those two men, just like the two angels in Sodom and Gomorrah, these two men go back into the house of the prostitute with her family and rush them out. Look at this. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. Now look at this. This phrase should get you to shout. The Bible says in verse 23, and they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And then, verse 24, they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab, the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. Man. I mean, if you want to know the truth about it, very interesting. I mean, I don't call him this, but, you know, Joshua, whose name was Yeshua, Hebrew name, Yeshua. Do you know what Jesus's name was? We get the name Jesus from the Latin. But do you know what his name was? Yeshua. Yeshua. His name was the same as Joshua. Yeshua, Yeshua. And look at this. And the Bible says, (laughs) glory to God. I love it. And Yeshua said, go into the house, pull them out. Glory to God. And I love the Bible says they moved them outside, far outside and far out of the way of destruction. Look at this. Before they burned the city with fire. Not while it was burning, not after it had been burned. Before. Before. Glory to God. Before. Let me ask you this. If we go back to the first Passover, the Bible says that the blood of the lamb was applied to the doorpost of their homes in Egypt. And all the families were safely in the homes with the blood before the death angel came and started touching houses. Before that began, they were in their homes, blood on the door, marked by covenant. See it. The wrath of God is not for us. It's not for you. It's not for me. It wasn't even for his people in the Old Testament. Wasn't for them. Hallelujah. Think how powerful. Rahab 
by covenant, spared before the city was burned. Sodom and Gomorrah, they would be burned, but not before Lot and his family were whisked out of the city. Oh, the earth would be destroyed in Noah's day, but not before Noah and his family were on the ark. Every picture you see in type and shadow of the rapture of the church happens before any wrath begins. Not in the middle of the wrath, not after the wrath is over, before. Your identity in Christ is the most powerful understanding that you could have as after you become a Christian. Because when you understand who you are and what is yours, you won't let the devil push you around. You won't let the devil harass your family. And you will not have an improper view of what's coming in the future. There's people that think we're in the tribulation right now. My God, we're in the tribulation. You don't know. You haven't read your Bible. If you think this is what tribulation is, you've not read your Bible. And I'm actually ashamed at several Pentecostal scholars who feel they've uh, truthfully treated the scriptures as they've um, written books about it. And these are men that I love and men that I follow and read what they have to say. And they're very intelligent, more intelligent than I am, far more intelligent than I am. But when they come to this particular subject of the tribulation and the rapture, and its position with, uh, in relation to the tribulation, I'm baffled. I'm baffled by these Pentecostal scholars who release books about the tribulation and the position of the tribulation in re- relation to the rapture and have the church going through the tribulation and then teaching, well, you know, the church has been in the midst of tribulation for thousands of years. That's not the tribula- That's not the wrath of God. It's the wrath of evil men. Listen, if you, and literally, I've read their book. I'm not going to mention it because I don't think it's worth mentioning. I love the men, but this book I don't recommend. Um, they start the book by talking about how they've both traveled the world. And in the time of traveling the world, They've seen Christians that have been really tortured, killed, persecuted. And we know that's true. And we know Jesus prophesied that it would happen. You'll be hated all over the world for my name's sake. If they hated the master of the house, they're going to hate you too. No question. We know that. But then to look at the persecution of the church around the world and say, well, see, the church has gone through tribulation for thousands of years. And to believe that we are going to be spared for some, from some seven-year judgment is just foolishness and the Bible doesn't teach it. How you cannot separate in your extremely intelligent mind, because I'm telling you, these guys are not dummies. They are not dummies. They are very, very smart. How you cannot, and they're spirit-filled, but how you cannot differentiate between what wicked men do to Christians and what God does to the world blows my mind. If you see uh, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, or Boko Haram, or any of these wicked 
groups across the earth, when you see them kidnapping Christians, beheading them, burning them to death, whatever that might be, is that, are you going to look at that and say, well, see, tribulation's been here for years. That's God's tribulation. That's not God. Do you think, what do you think? God has somehow struck a partnership with Boko Haram? You think God has struck up a partnership with Al-Qaeda and that God is empowering them to kill Christians? No, that's not the tribulation that the Bible is speaking about. It is God's wrath for those who have rejected Jesus Christ, not for the people who have accepted his sacrifice by grace through faith. That's foolishness. That's absolute foolishness. And to equate thousands, 2,000 years of persecution to what God's going to do in the uh, tribulation of the earth. It's not, doesn't even, it's not even the same category. Doesn't even hold a candle to what's going to happen to come. You go read it in the book of Revelation. If you think it's all allegory, it's not. To read the book of tribula- uh, the, the book of Revelation and think that all the things that are being said are allegory. You read the Bible literally unless there's no way to do so. You read the Bible literally. Do I believe that Moses threw his staff down in Pharaoh's court and it turned into a serpent? Yes, I do. Because that's what the story is saying. It's a sign, a wonder, and a miracle. Do I believe that the magicians of the day threw their staffs down and they turned into serpents? Yes. Do I believe that Moses' uh, serpent ate all up, uh, swallowed all of theirs? And then it turned back into a rod and he took it back up again? Yes, because you can read that literally and there's no issue with reading it literally. Now, go to the book of Proverbs. Do I believe that wisdom is a woman crying out in the streets? Do I believe that wisdom is an actual woman somewhere on the earth? No, because you read that and you understand that uh, the writer of scripture there, Solomon, is... uh, giving a personification to an idea or to an attribute. Wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom's not an actual person. It's not a woman somewhere crying out in the streets. You don't read that literally. So you have to understand how you study the Bible. You don't study it that way. But if you can read the Bible literally, and there's a way to do it, and it doesn't, then you read it literally. Amen. When Jesus says he's telling parables, he's telling parables. Those things didn't actually happen. It was a story to teach you a lesson. However, when Jesus tells you a story about something that took place, don't label it a parable because it's not. It actually happened. For example, Jesus told many parables. You know, the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed. Well, there wasn't an actual man scattering seed. And Jesus, let me tell you this story from history about a man that scattered seed. It's a parable. He's just teaching you a lesson. But when Jesus told the story of the rich man and Lazarus being in two different portions of hell, one in paradise, one in a place of suffering, crying out, that actually happened. Another way that you'll know that is Jesus never used names when he was telling parables. And so when you read the Bible, see, this is why it blows my mind. These guys that are so intelligent, it's like they've missed it on these areas. And that's why I'm encouraging you with this today. Don't miss it in this area. 
Don't miss it. Don't miss who you are in Christ. Don't miss your authority. Don't miss your power. Don't believe a lie that you don't have the ability to do what God called you to do, what he's anointed you to do. Don't believe a lie. Don't believe a lie. You are anointed. You are seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus, far above all rule and authority and dominion and power and every name that's named, not only in this world, but that which is to come. All things have been put far under your feet. Christ has been made head of all things to the church, which is his body. That's you. That's who you are. The fullness of him that filleth all in all, the Bible says. We're the fullness of God on the earth. Bible says so in Ephesians 1. We're the fullness of God on the earth. Thank you, Jesus. We're not nobodies. We're not insignificant. We're not struggling. We're not limping through life. We're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Far above. Not a little bit. Not just above. Far above. Somebody do it by faith. I mean, I feel the Holy Ghost on that. All caps in the comments. Far above. Far above. I'm not struggling through the devil's mess. He doesn't have access to me and my family. Far above. Far above. Thank you, Lord Jesus. <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's it. Write it in the comments. Far above, far above. I feel the Holy Ghost on this today. Far above. I'm dealing this week with the authority of the believer, the, your identity in Christ. Yesterday, we, we really broke it down. Today, I'm letting you see this, that even when it comes to end times Bible prophecy, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, you'll even have a wrong view of that. Because you're not appointed under wrath. You're not destined for wrath. That doesn't just mean hell. It means the wrath that God will pour out at the time of the tribulation. If you think, and I did, listen, I did whole broadcasts on this. But if you think coronavirus was God judging the earth for something they had done or, you know, as, as one preacher said, it's God judging America because of abortion. Okay. Well, if you really think that, then what do you say to any Christian who either not only caught it and suffered through it, especially during the early days, March, February, but what do you say to any Christian that's died because of it? What are you going to go tell their family? Sorry, your family member died of coronavirus. That was from God. He was judging America because of abortion. See, people don't even think. What do you think? God is a, a, has bad aim? Do you think God has bad aim? You think God's just launching judgments from heaven? and accidentally hitting his children whom he loves? You think God has that bad of aim? When, when California was burning and burning and burning and everything was on fire, people say, see, that's the judgment of God. What do you say to every Christian whose house burned down or their business uh, was destroyed because of the burning? Well, they should have got out of there. Oh, really? That's, that's what you picked up from scripture? That if there's wrath coming, God such bad, a bad, has such bad aim that you should have got out of there? No. It's not the same. It's not the same. And people don't get that. And see, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, and you don't understand the nature of God, you'll, you'll think like these people think. And it'll be detrimental to your Christianity. 
It'll be detrimental to your Christianity. We've got to understand our identity, who we are, what we have the right to do. Give you one more verse before I pray for you. Hebrews chapter four, go with me. Hebrews four. That's right, Jennifer. God doesn't hurt us. He's got no plans to hurt us. He hurt Christ so that you didn't have to be hurt. Hallelujah. He hurt Christ so that you didn't have to be hurt. You know, there's actually dummies out there. There are dummies out there that teach, well, God didn't really want. God really didn't want Jesus to be crucified. God didn't really want Jesus to be crucified. I don't know, if, has anybody ever heard that? Raise your hand in the comments. I'm, I'm interested actually, because we hear so many of these things on, on YouTube and whatever. You know, God loved Jesus. He didn't want him to be crucified, but you know, he, he did it because he loved us. Ever, you ever heard anybody say that? That God didn't, now I know Jesus didn't want to be crucified. He prayed and said, Lord, if there's any way for this cup to pass for me. But how many have heard that God didn't really want Jesus to be crucified? Listen to Isaiah 53, 10. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. And he put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It did what? It pleased the Lord to, to bruise him. Please the Lord. Why? He was sent for that purpose. You know, it's not like they just like God was up in heaven freaking out. He was like, I can't believe they've captured my son, my one and only son. Now they're going to crucify him. He planned for it. He sent him for that purpose. <laughs> you think God, do you think God is happy when his plans come to pass? Or do you think he's upset that his own plans came to pass? He's happy. It pleases the Lord when his plans come to pass. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. The Bible says so. I've got you here in Hebrews 4. This is what I'm going to read to you before I pray. And here's something, what I'm getting ready to read to you, that you cannot do. You cannot do this in prayer unless you know who you are in Christ, understand your righteousness and your position, and have the ability to do what this verse says. Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence mm, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. One translation, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. This translation, let us with confidence. If you feel like you aren't worthy to ask God for anything. You can't boldly or with confidence approach his throne. You'd be like, well, Lord, I'm sorry to have to ask you this. You know, I know you've got a lot going on with other prayers that you're answering at this time, especially during the new year, Lord. A lot of people have resolutions, believe for miracles. And so I'm sorry to add more to your plate, Lord Jesus, but I'm just gonna ask you now. Like people think like that. I've had people tell me in revival services, in prayer lines, 
I say, hey, what do you want the Lord to do for you tonight? Oh, well, no, not nothing for me. I'm, uh, what, I'm, what I'm dealing with uh, doesn't even compare to what so many others are going through right now. And you think, what are you going to think? You're going to throw God off his whole system? You think, you're, oh, another one, another prayer request. Don't, don't they know I'm up here? I got a whole line of prayer requests. I mean, you honestly think that's what God's dealing with? He's omnipotent. He's able. He's well able. And that's how people think. Well, I don't want to add anything. I know he's doing a lot for many people and I don't want to add more to his plate. Well, you think you're going to make God too busy? He doesn't have the ability to do it. And there's people that think because, now listen to me, because I'm not just mocking that thought process. I want you to hear this. Just because there are others who are dealing with things that may seem more severe or urgent than what you're dealing with has nothing to do with what God is willing to do for you. Catch that in your spirit. Yes, there are others that have things that are more severe than what you're dealing with, more urgent. Maybe they're on their deathbed. But let me tell you something that's wonderful. God has the ability to help them and to help you at the same time. You're not pulling away from his resources. You're not pulling away from his attention because he helps you and you've petitioned him. It doesn't mean he has to take his attention off somebody else who needs his help. He's all sufficient. He's El Shaddai. And so hear me, you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Why? You know who you are in Christ. Do you know, my, my kids have no issue asking me for, if they want some money. No, no issue whatsoever. You know, I've never had one of my daughters or my son walk down into the kitchen in the morning and say, Dad, I, I really hate to ask you this. You know, I know, I know there's so much going on in your life and ministry. And um, I, I really, really, please forgive me for asking this. I really hate to ask it. But is there any way that I might be able to have some breakfast today? I've never had my children talk to me that way. They have an understanding. I've got a covenant relationship. Maybe they don't understand it in that way, but they, they know it because of how we interact. When they're older, they will. I have a relationship with daddy and daddy takes care of me and daddy makes breakfast. Mommy makes breakfast. They know. And so what do they do? They don't have any problem asking me because they know I love them. And they know that I'll even stop what I'm doing and I'll make, you want some swirl, you want some cinnamon swirl toast? You want some cinnamon toast crunch? You want some eggs and bacon? Daddy will get it for you. Mommy will get it for you. Why? They ask us and they don't have any, they don't apologize first. They don't come sheepishly. They're like, well, I don't know if you, if you have any time at some point during the, no, they ask and they receive. Hallelujah. They ask and they receive. And that's how we've got to be. We boldly and with confidence approach the throne of grace. And you can't do that until you know who you are in Jesus Christ. You can't do it until you understand your righteous position that's been given to you by grace through faith. Hallelujah. I want to pray for you now because I'm, I know this week is going to help you. This week is going to open your eyes and it's going to show you things about your identity in Christ that you never knew. Things that maybe you've never heard taught or preached. 
But when they come alive in your heart, it's going to put you on a whole nother level. You're going to run through 2021 in Jesus name. Father, I'm praying for every man, every woman that's either watching me live, watching the replay, listening on the podcast, Lord, wherever they're watching, whoever they are from this day, let these messages open the eyes of their understanding. Let them be enlightened. Let them see what they've never seen in the mighty word of God. I pray, Lord, that you would put such a boldness in your people, a tenacity of faith in your people, that they would never stop pressing in for your goodness, your promises, your covenant. Let us press in like the persistent woman and receive exactly what we ask for. As your word says, we'll ask and receive that our joy may be full. Hallelujah. Ask and receive that your joy may be full. So we receive it. We receive it by the power of God. We, we thank you that February is going to be a month of fire. Fire in February. In Jesus' name. Lord, let the fire of your spirit burn up every attack of the devil. All sickness, all disease, depression, anxiety, poverty, lack, marriage issues, family problems. Let them be burned up by the power of God in the month of February. We receive miracles. We receive signs. We receive wonders in this month. We thank you, Lord, that though it may be the shortest month of the year, we'll see more take place than we ever have in these 28 short days of February. We receive it and we declare it's ours in Jesus' mighty name. And if you believe it, somebody shout aloud, amen. Throw some fire in the comments. Amen. Throw some fire in the comments. They're shouting amen in the lobby of the church. Uh, shout amen. And put it in the comments, fire, hands, whatever you want. Let the Lord know you receive it today in Jesus' mighty name. Now listen, I'm very serious about this. We're on a mission. We're on a mission together to touch the world this is why I'm teaching you. See, you're a part of the team. It's why we call you the Victory Tribe. I can feel the strength of the Victory Tribe behind me every single day. That's why I come on here. I don't do it arbitrarily. I do it because we are a team. We are a family, the family of God. And those of you that keep logging on day after day, it's because you know you've got a covenant connection with me and with Carol and with this ministry. Listen to me. We're on a mission to touch the world by the power of God. Right now, we're doing everything that we can to touch unsaved souls with the gospel before it's too late. And it is. Time's running out. And so I'm asking you right now to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And I'm asking you to sow a seed of faith, something significant today. You know who you are in Christ. You know that God has placed you in the earth for such a time as this. Every action of dedication that you take in the kingdom is making an impact and so here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Love you too, Luenda. I'm asking you to pray and ask the Holy Spirit, what am I supposed to sow by faith? What is my seed? What am I doing that's going to show the Lord I'm ready for increase? I'm ready to see this world, this earth, this generation shaken by the power of God. Information's on the screen. But you pray and the Lord's going to speak to you. Thank you for sowing a seed. Lord's going to speak to you right now and tell you what he is asking you to do. See, his instruction is everything. When we obey it, brings us into overflow. Amen. And so you can always go to miracleword.com. You can partner there. Listen to me. I'm encouraging you to partner. I'm encouraging you to stand with us on a monthly basis 
Do it and watch the Lord increase you. There might be people that are watching, like, man, I can only do $100 a month right now. I'd love to do more, but it's all I can do is $100 a month. Do what you can do now and watch as God increases you. You know how many testimonies we've had of that? People started at a certain level and very soon instantly increased and their partnership went up, 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 up because God keeps blessing. God keeps on blessing. <laughs> Hallelujah. God keeps on blessing. And that's what's going to happen to you. And so take that step of faith today. Sign up at MiracleWord.com to be a monthly partner and watch what God will do for you. For everybody that's sewing $85 a month or more, this month we're going to send you this book uh, by Brother Kenneth Hagin entitled Understanding the Anointing. One of the most wonderful books on the anointing ever been produced. We want to put it in your hand. This is a phenomenal read and it'll open your eyes to the things of the Holy Spirit. All you got to do is go to miracleword.com forward slash offer. And when you go there, you can fill out the form, which lets us know how you sewed and where we can send your book. If you already have this book, there's other options available in the drop down menu as well. Thank you, Brian, for sowing a seed yesterday. We appreciate it. We'd love to see you in, in Charlotte, uh, Brian. All the details are online uh, and we really appreciate you. So I'm encouraging you, do what the Lord tells you to do today. And then of course, everybody that is giving $1,000 or more, I'm gonna sign and send to you a genuine leather, New Living Translation, Life Application Study Bible. And uh, it's our way of saying thank you to those that are uh, standing with us largely. We have people that'll sow largely, $5,000, $10,000, $15,000, And so listen, maybe the Lord's speaking to you to do something large in the month of February. Do what he's asking you to do. You know, one of the things we have to keep in mind is that as the Lord continues to bless us and use us, he expects us to take bigger steps of faith than we ever have. Maybe you're in a position right now, you've never sown a thousand dollar seed in your life. It's time to step out big like that for the Lord. And understand, it might be big for you. It might be big for you. But see, God is always testing our heart to see, can I trust them with more? Can I trust them with more? Can I trust them? That's the question. See, if there's no cap on what, the, what you'll do for the Lord, there's no cap on what he'll do for you. It's a powerful thought. So I want to say thank you to everybody that uh, is standing with us in partnership and in sewing. We love you very much. Um, you can always go, and I said this at the beginning, go to miraclewordkids.com. We've got new resources available and tomorrow a very special surprise for all the kids that, that are connected with us. And let me say a couple of things. These teachings that we're doing are so vital to you being equipped in the last days for what you're called to do. I don't often say this, but I'm going to take a minute here at the end and say it. I truly believe that you need to be connected to Miracle Word University. I truly believe that you need to be connected. We, we launched that a few years ago with the expectation that God's people would be built up, equipped, and your eyes opened to these areas that so many people don't understand. So what did we do? We created for you an online training center where you can learn the doctrines of scripture from a Pentecostal perspective. And I wanna encourage you to get involved with it. We have courses available right now uh, we have a course on the Holy Spirit. We have a course on divine healing. We have a course on answered prayer. 
We have a course on mountain moving faith. And our newest course is divine prosperity, divine prosperity. It's over eight hours of teaching, eight hours of teaching on walking in supernatural financial abundance. So you don't have to ever, ever have to struggle financially or go from paycheck to paycheck. There's a way to build wealth in the kingdom of God and be a blessing in your generation. All you got to do is go to miracle word you, the letter you.com miracle word you.com. And there you can browse through each course and see the videos that are included. And then every course is only $69. We're doing something special for you guys that want to get involved that have never been involved before. Uh, we're c- including, as you saw a moment ago, there it is again, all five of those courses, which are $69 each for only $249. It's more than 25%. It's 28% off is what it is. So, I mean, think about that. Uh, normally, if you did that, it would be about $350, but we're giving it to you for $249 so that you can get involved and get all the content. You can literally download any of these. Uh, you can download audio files. There's a way to interact with each other in the chat section of each video. I can see your comments. I can respond to your questions. And uh, it's great. And I want you to be involved. It's there for you for a purpose. And then let me say one more thing before I, before I go. And we're going to be live again tonight at 7 o'clock. We're in Revival here in Roswell, Georgia. If you've not done so yet, I want to encourage you to uh, download our app in the app store on Google play on Apple devices. You can get it. Just search miracle word in the app store, miracle word. We have all kinds of resources in there for you. But one of the things that I love and a lot of people love is our 24 hour, seven day a week, digital radio station. We've had this for years and it's nonstop preaching and teaching just like this that you can listen to in the car, while you're working, while you're working out. It just pumps you full of faith all day long. You can keep it on, works with Amazon, Alexa. I mean, everything. You can be a part of that. It's right in the app. All of it's free, which is wonderful. And we're getting ready to add a whole lot more uh, for you guys as well. So grab that. If you've not gotten it, grab it from the App Store. Miracle Word in the Google Play or the Apple App Store. I love you guys. Thank you for hanging with me. Thanks to everybody that sowed a seed uh, via Cash App, PayPal, hashtag donate, whatever. The website, we love you. We appreciate you. And uh, we'll be back tonight and all this week uh, till Friday, 7 p.m. right here at World Harvest Church. My father's preaching. It's powerful. You do not want to miss it. This is week two of Revival. We start week three next week in Charlotte, North Carolina, Albemarle. We want to see you in live services. Go to MiracleWord.com, click the schedule button, see where we're going to be, and then come join us. It's going to be powerful all year long. We love you. Have a great day. And I'll see you again tonight at 7 o'clock. Later. Now that's the stuff leaders should be made of.